Grace, mercy, and peace to us in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's sermon text focuses on the Old Testament reading from 1 Kings, chapter 19, with particular emphasis on verse 9. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and God said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? First, some context. Elijah is a prophet of God. And the Lord chooses him to proclaim his word to the kingdom of Israel around 900 B.C., sometime after that kingdom had been divided between north and south. The Lord has particularly strong words for the queen of the northern kingdom, that high priestess of Baal worship and infamous harlot Jezebel. Just prior to the account in our reading, Elijah engages the false prophets of Baal in a duel between their so-called God and the true God of Israel. Elijah comes out bold. The Lord has called him to this confrontation, and he knows that there is only one God. He compels the prophets of Baal to build and prepare an altar to their God on Mount Carmel, only they are not to light it. They are to call instead on Baal to consume the offering himself. That is, if there's such a thing as Baal. The prophets are up for this challenge, And they comply, calling out to their false god, O Baal, answer us. All day long they rave and cut themselves in ritual fashion, letting their own blood gush out. But finally, at the time for ritual oblation, they still have no answer. There's no voice. There's no so-called god paying any attention to them. And throughout all this, Elijah has stood by taunting them. Then, after they give up, he repairs the Lord's altar that they had thrown down previously, and he builds his altar in the name of the Lord. When the time comes, Elijah prays to the Lord, and the sacrifice is consumed, even though they had drenched it three times. Thus, the Lord answers God, answers Elijah with fire, and the matter is settled. Yahweh, the Lord, is the true God of Israel. And because of their presumption and blasphemy, Elijah puts the false prophets of Baal to death by the sword. Queen Jezebel, hearing of this incident from her husband, Ahab the king, she puts a bounty on Elijah's head, and he runs for his life. Fleeing, he nearly passes out from exhaustion. Then, depressed and weary, he calls out to God, not for deliverance, but for his own death. The Lord revives him and sends him on his way. And where does Elijah go? He goes to Mount Horeb, where he holds up in a cave. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And the Lord asks him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I love how in the Bible, nobody ever really seems to answer God with the whole truth whenever they're confronted by him. Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. But God knows why Elijah is in this cave, why he has fled, and why he is hiding. God's question to Elijah is pointed. And it comes with more than a hint of reproach. 
very much like a parent might ask a school-aged child who is still in bed with just 10 minutes before the bus arrives. There's a point to this question. What are you doing here? The point is, you do not belong here. You're not where you should be. Elijah makes his excuses. He is not where he should be. And the real answer to God's question, the truthful answer is, I am not trusting in you, Lord. What are you doing here, Elijah? I am not trusting in you. So God gives him a powerful demonstration, and it's a lesson that's useful to all of us. As if the previous demonstration of his power and might were not enough to convince us, God rends and scorches the earth before Elijah's very eyes. He sends a mighty wind to tear up the mountains and break the rocks in pieces. Then a terrible earthquake. And then fire. It's a terrifying display of his awesome power. So terrifying that Elijah seeks shelter back in his cave while all this is happening, even though God has put him in a place where he could see this great conflagration. And there's a lesson here for us too. God told Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. This is where God puts him in order that he may witness the Lord's mighty power even over earth, wind, and fire. But we read, look at verse 13, when it's all over, Elijah wraps his face in his cloak and goes out and stands at the entrance of the cave. Do you see? What's he doing in the cave? God put him on the mountain. God put him in the middle of this maelstrom, yet somehow Elijah ends up back in his cave. Now, who can really blame him? Who's going to stand out there exposed while all this is going on? We can imagine the wind whipping, the rocks crumbling, the earth shaking, and the fire sweeping over the entire surface of the earth. And Elijah says to himself, wisely, you had best seek shelter. And in he goes. But he's lost sight of the fact that God placed him there on the mountain to see all this in the first place. If God has put him there, and God is also responsible for all this mayhem, should Elijah not also trust that God will keep him safe through it all? And again, I love how the Bible does these things, or how God does these things and the Bible reports it. God is not throwing some kind of temper tantrum here. He's providing Elijah with an object lesson relating to the exact situation that he faces in real life. There's a storm raging in Elijah's world, and God has placed him smack dab in the middle of it. At first, Elijah is bold and filled with faith as he battles the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Now he is hiding and fearing for his life, shaken by this witch and her vile threats. But the Lord is Lord of all. And as he is in command of everything, even of earth, wind, and fire, he is also in command of powers and principalities. God places Elijah on the mountain before him to bear witness to his mighty power, just as he had already placed him in the northern kingdom of Israel to confront Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. And Elijah's response to both is exactly the same, to hide in this cave. In fact, it's exactly the same cave. As in this instance where Elijah, feeling exposed, seeks shelter in this cave, he's also seeking shelter from the storm raging in Israel. 
And as he might have taken solace in the fact that God, having placed him in this position on the mountain, would protect him from harm, Elijah should also be confident that the Lord, having anointed him to be the prophet at this time and in this place, will likewise preserve him. It's no accident that Jezebel is a murderous cow, and it doesn't come as a surprise to God. He knows what he's doing. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And throughout Scripture, we see that we can trust the Lord. Scripture is very clear that God is ruler of heaven and earth, and nothing escapes his notice. How hard it is to believe, to truly believe. How impossible without the Spirit of God. Elijah feels alone, depressed, and he's in despair. He feels the evil forces of the world and the devil encroaching upon him, weighing him down. So much so that he wishes he were dead. I, even I, am the only one. It's the definition of the Elijah complex. And we ourselves are susceptible to just such an attitude. Nobody here today is actually Elijah, but we can certainly sympathize with his plight. Living as Christians in this world can be lonely. Standing for what is true and godly puts us on a collision course with the reigning secular orthodoxy, which is nothing more than human authority separated from God's word. We become outsiders, even subversive. And the prevailing sinful attitudes and ideas of this world put pressure on us. Here are some examples. We feel that pressure when we're compelled to participate in a corporate training session that touts ideologies that are in no way, shape, or form biblical or Christian. Maybe we drive past a billboard that encourages us to get involved with some unworthy and unbiblical cause that everybody else seems to think is worthy. When we're exposed to all sorts of lies and filth that show up on any of the multitude of screens that are so ubiquitous in our lives, it doesn't even have to be your own screen. You sit in a shop waiting for your car to get fixed. There it is. You're waiting for a haircut. You're sitting at the airport on a business trip. We're exposed daily to trash, even against our will, just because we're members of society and happen to have eyes and ears. It leaves us feeling overwhelmed and oppressed, even depressed and despairing. We want to withdraw, to retreat, to hide in a cave. And if we succumb to these inclinations, the Lord has word for us today in today's passage. What are you doing here, Elijah? The Lord caps off his awesome display with a sound. A thin silence in the Hebrew. The English Standard Version translates it as the sound of a low whisper. And the Lord is in this whisper. It is the word of the Lord, more powerful and mighty than any strong wind, any earthquake, or any fire which the Lord sends, because he is not in those things. He's in this whisper. It is his word. We meet the Lord where he is. In his word. He speaks it to Elijah just as I'm speaking it to you here today. The Lord calls Elijah as he also calls us to engage the world boldly. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, 
He utters his voice and the earth melts. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord calls Elijah back to his work. Go. Go back. I have called you for a purpose. I have authorized you for a task. Don't be of little faith. Go. I have a plan and you are part of it. Go. Anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. And anoint Elisha to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yes, the nations will rage. The kingdoms will totter. And the Lord will take care of punishing his enemies in due time, speaking to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury. He executes justice upon the land through kings and principalities. He makes known his word through the voice of the prophets. He has a plan, and we have a calling. Now let's get out of the cave and get to work. We each have our own calling from God. He calls us to be his own, and he authorizes us to a purpose. We come to the right understanding of that calling and that purpose by reading and hearing his word. He claims us through the gospel and in holy baptism. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified me, and kept me in the true faith. Those gifts that enlighten us are his word and sacrament. He speaks to us. He calls us out of darkness and into his light. He clothes us in his righteousness. The perfect prophet and king makes us prophets and kings with him. Christ Jesus himself calls us and claims us as his own. So what are we doing here? Well, first and foremost, this is where we should be, right here in the sanctuary, hearing God's word, finding nourishment for our journey in God's word and in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, confessing our sin, not justifying ourselves before God or making excuses, knowing our sin, acknowledging it, repenting of it, confessing and receiving God's merciful forgiveness and absolution learning of our sin and learning of our Savior, this is exactly where we should be. And it is also right that we're out in the world practicing our God-given vocations by which we serve both God and our neighbor as fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, husbands, wives, and workers. God calls us to serve one another in church, in our workplaces, and in our homes. And we profess our faith in Jesus Christ in all of these regardless of whether such profession of faith is popular or even acceptable to the wicked world in which we live. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that day is drawing near. We can feel it. The earth is groaning under the weight of the evil that it bears. People are coming unhinged. 
Christ has promised that there will be wars and earthquakes and famine before the end, but these are just the beginnings of birth pains. The world around us is terrified and confused over what all these signs mean. We are not. The world around us seeks to fix these problems of natural upheaval. We do not. We are called and authorized to speak the good news about the one who makes all things new. We are sent to speak on behalf of God for the good of our neighbor. And as Elijah witnessed the great conflagration before him, the end wasn't until the sound of the small whisper, a thin silence. It was the word of God. Likewise, the end, the great eschaton, comes after this gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. We are not alone. God is with us, and he has placed us here, right here at this time and in this place. He sits on his throne and lives and reigns to all eternity. We are his, and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The advent of our Lord is near. So what are we doing? We're going. We're going in the peace and power of the Lord, living as his own and serving him in righteousness and purity forever. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.